Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Archonnect Sessions, episode 110. This week, Ken and I talk with John Kerry. John is a writer, speaker, strategist, and curator that has dedicated his career to empowering architects to give back and do good. His latest book, published by Island Press, is called Design for Good, A New Era of Architecture for Everyone. It's beautifully designed by Pentagram's Paula Scher, with an introduction by Melinda Gates. In the book, John shares the stories of 20 projects that utilize the power of good design to bring dignity to people in need around the world. The book will be available for purchase next week on October 3rd. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. So I think we first met online in the early 2000s when you were the acting vice president of the AIA student organization. I know you've come a really long way since then. So maybe we can start out with you getting us caught up with what you've been doing. Well, I'm happy to do so. But in the spirit of dispelling any fake news, that would have been 1999 and 2000, oh, so believe it or not. So <laughs> way, way further. Yeah, that's uh, that's aging us very far back. So I'm not sure what that says about either one of us, but we were in touch at that time. And I think right around the time that, that Arconnect was started. And I just remember the two of us being interested in communication as it relates to this journey that we were both on at the time about you know becoming an architect. And the AIS played a role in my journey, certainly for the year that I was representing architecture students nationally. But it was a fascinating learning experience. And the thing I might just point out is that you were kind of out in the world doing this exploration. And I was like inside the belly of the beast. I mean, literally working in the AI headquarters building in Washington, D.C. and saw some fascinating things happening there. And it only served to reinforce my instinct that communication with young architects was more important than ever. Yeah, it was an exciting time back then. I mean, I, I feel like it was, especially for architecture, which I mean, Part of the reason that I started the site was to kind of break architecture out of this kind of uh, incestuous position it, it had been in. So where did you go from that position after after you were at the uh, AIAS? Well, I ended up co-founding with another past AIS national officer named Cassius Peeler, a nonprofit organization, kind of a watchdog, frankly, that looked very closely at what the AIA and NCARB, that's the you know, National Registration Board, um, were doing as it related to the pathway that graduates were on toward becoming licensed. And so we studied their proceedings, their board meetings, their conferences, their programs in considerable depth. And we did that for upwards of six years under the auspices of Arc Voices. We actually never published our names. We simply did it under this banner. And people like you that we were in communication with knew who we were. But um, we, tried to, uh, we tried to convey that we were simply asking the kinds of questions that other interns would be asking. The difference was that we had access to some of the answers and some of the materials that people outside of AI building didn't have. And so we tried to leverage that experience and that exposure that we had. And so that was a six-year endeavor that you know we're very proud of. We made a lot of progress relative to getting interns, as they were called at that time, the ability to take the ARE concurrent with the intern development program, allowing interns to take the ARE upon graduation, you know, which is wasn't always the norm. And you know, we were very proud of the, the work that we had done in that day and age, but it was also deeply depressing 
I mean, just to think of like the uh, glacial pace of change in the profession, we just both decided that's not what we wanted to do for the rest of our lives. And so we very deliberately and intentionally wound it down after that six-year time period. Hmm. At what point did you decide that you weren't going to be kind of pursuing a traditional architectural practice? Well, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, after the AIS and as I was co-founding Arc Voices, I went to graduate school at Berkeley, which was fascinating and um, uh, had a wonderful experience there. But I met a lot of researchers, scholars, professors who were focused on the culture of the profession. And it ranged from folks like Galen Kranz to, you know, Berkeley alums like Dana Cuff as well as several others. And I saw a lot of myself in them. And so my, my interest in the profession and in the culture of the, of the profession just naturally led me away from the kind of day-to-day practice of design. And rather than exiting an MARC program and going into professional practice, I instead entered Berkeley's PhD program and set about trying to do this type of research in a doctoral program. And so it was probably at that moment that technically I made a different, you know, I made a pivot and stepped in a different direction. But, you know, I'm sure you could trace the roots much earlier to when I decided that I just didn't want to do things the way that they had always been done. Were you drawn to Berkeley because of that, the reputation that the that the school and the, the location and the program had? Or do you feel like your direction was informed by your experience at the school? Yeah, I, I think it was a little bit of both. I I honestly wanted to go to Yale. <laughs> I wanted to do the Yale building project with a bunch of my friends who had gotten into that program. Basically, all my friends that got into Yale didn't get into Berkeley, and I was the only one that didn't get into Yale, but got into Berkeley. And so I was like out here on the West Coast, you know, which turns out to be the place that I wanted to spend the rest of my life. But nonetheless, it didn't afford me the kind of design build opportunities that a school like Yale had to offer. And so I didn't actually know that this focus on the culture of the profession was something that was synonymous with Berkeley. It's just, it's just not the kind of thing that was front and center when they're trying to attract people to a design program. Maybe if I had been recruited or, you know, more deliberately going into the PhD program from the get-go, I would have known that Berkeley has this history related to the, the culture or the profession or related to social and cultural factors in design generally, but I didn't. So th- this is probably the biggest theme of my career. Very, very little of it has been deliberate. And if I would have tried to plan the path that, that I've ended up on, it, it would, first of all, be really inefficient. Secondly, be ridiculous because, you know, I've ended up being able to do some really amazing things, mostly because I am a kind of outlier in the professional world. And so people think that I'm, you know, different or somewhat special in certain ways. And, and I've never thought of myself as either one of those things. I'm simply pursuing things that are of interest to me and I'm taking advantage of opportunities. Those are the the two biggest distinctions, I think. That is uh, really surprising, actually, because I, I have always assumed that you had this end goal in mind from the time that you were a kid, because it seems like <laughs> everything has really come together quite nicely for you with your career and your uh, initiatives for as long as I've been kind of tracking your, your development. Have you always 
been someone that has been interested in kind of pursuing a social good and and uh, a more kind of charitable approach to to life and work? Or is that something that came later? Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. I, I didn't actually understand the roots of that myself until, you know, I'd say at least midway through the quote unquote career that I've had. It struck me one day that I'm the I'm the product, the son of a 35 year nonprofit director and a 40 year career nurse and service is a huge part of their lives. They instilled it in me, maybe not expressly, but certainly by their example. And so, you know, I I just assumed that that's what architecture was about in the first place. I didn't understand how or why this type of practice that I've embarked on, you know, would be so different. This is what I thought it was about. And, you know, just tracing it back for a second to the work that we did with Arc Voices. I mean, literally the whole framework for internship and licensure and who becomes a registered architect is called the the health, safety, and welfare of the public. And yet what I've observed, you know, through my research and my writing, as well as spending a lot of times working with firms and these professional organizations is that architecture generally serves a pretty narrow percentage of the population. And it remains a very elite profession, relatively speaking. And yet we can look, you know, outside our front doors and see the need and the opportunity for design to improve people's lives. And yet we have not delivered on that promise at scale. And so that might sound like a really pessimistic view. I actually have a very optimistic view that we can do that. And so my work has been to try to show through example, some mine, but mostly other people's examples, you know, what that might look like and what that kind of brighter, more inclusive future might be. Why do you think it is that architecture has such a narrow focus without a heavy regard for for public service? Well, I I think there's two pieces. One is it's a service profession. And so it serves the clients that have the resources to pay for it. And there are other service professions like the law profession. But within the law profession, for example, there is baked into the culture of that profession over decades now, and some would argue even longer, uh, there is a culture of pro bono and public interest law. It is well-known. It is well-resourced. There's a pipeline, meaning there are very, very clear associate and postgraduate fellowship opportunities. There is loan forgiveness programs. There's a whole array of other things to support that work. The second piece, once again, ties back to the work that we're doing with Arc Voices as it relates to NCARB and uh, state licensing boards and so on. There are people that believe that there are too many architects and that there already is too much competition. And so as a result, many of the laws that we see governing the practice of architecture, including the use of the title architect, are protectionist. They're not protectionist for the sake of the public health, safety, and welfare. They're protectionist for the sake of a profession that wants to guard its territory. And that manifests in some pretty, you know, unsexy ways, meaning the all of the disputes that architects have had over the years with interior design licensing, for example, or with people calling themselves architects in the same way that anyone that would go to law school would call themselves a lawyer or anybody that goes to medical school would call themselves a doctor. 
that is distinct from the actual process of licensure. And so anyone coming out of, of medical school calls themselves a doctor because they have a doctoral degree, you know, an, an MD. When you are a board certified doctor, that's when you get certain specializations and distinctions. When you exit architecture school, as you well know, you are not called an architect. You're only called an architect when you achieve registration, which in that case, I would argue, and that others have argued over time, distinguish those people by calling them registered architects, not just protecting the name architects. And so as a result, you have a lot of people like me, as well as a lot of distinguished deans and plenty of other people around the world that do not identify with the architecture profession because we're simply not allowed to. And that is a huge loss of power in a a world where you know we we very much need numbers in order to compete and in order to reach the kind of scale that I was referencing. You know, you hit on so many issues that I just um, pretty fascinating, especially with the work we did you you and uh, Cassius did with um, with the NCARB. So I want to hit that one a little bit. I think what's interesting. I'm I'm now studying for uh, the California um, CSE right now. And uh, so I <laughs> see a lot of that, that protectionist language in how even not, even as I, as I'm a licensed architect in Colorado and in Minnesota, very, very sketchy when I start to even consider taking on projects that I'm not ready to a license to take on in California. So partnering up and dealing with all of, all of those uh, issues around that. So it's, I'm interested in, in how that When I was growing up, I was a, I didn't have the same background as you. I, was, I grew up as a pretty poor kid. So when you're talking about where, why the profession isn't really kind of finding itself um, doing these kinds of projects, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it really comes down to who has the, who has the uh, capital to pay for such a service. And, you know, as a poor kid who decided to want to be an architect, you know, I found myself really wanting to be part of that crowd. And now that I, where I am sitting in my career, I'm actually more interested in what, what you're doing and I, I've come full circle. So, and I, it took me a while to figure out how to get there. And, and part of what I've done here in the Twin Cities is I've, uh, my fiance has a, um, has been part of an anti-racism group for the past 20 years. And it just dawned on me this weekend that I couldn't figure out how to, what I could do as an architect to kind of try to tap into those questions about how do we get at a privilege? How do we get at the issues that um, create an environment where the, the people who need the services the most in our communities aren't able to tap into that? Mm -hmm. And so it, when you're talking about these issues and you're talking about who are these people designing for and they're designing for the people who have uh, the resources, mm -hmm. when I think what it comes for me, what it came down to is actually tapping into my own personal narrative. Mm -hmm. And, and, that, and that's why I find, you know, and even I'd like you to talk a little bit about pro bono, because I think even architects today think about pro bono very differently than say an attorney. Yeah. I think their framework is that, and I, and thankfully I, I went to one of the seminars in the AI conference in San Francisco a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And as the first time I actually understood that pro bono was completely different than what I expected. I thought pro bono was free services. And now I understand that pro bono is a very different model. It's reduced fees. It's, it's you know, doing things 
and and you know it's not free <laughs> so today my my own personal practice is trying to connect with people and trying to leverage my abilities and my skills to help them in their endeavors and and you know we on our connect we talked to um Emily Emily Hunt who's got a pro bono uh, she's doing a project right now and I'm doing some pro bono work for her it's a craft grilled cheese shop and her mission is a 501c3 and her mission is to give formerly incarcerated people a second shot and give them work in her in her grilled cheese shop <laughs> and I'm providing her services um, and this is my fee no lie grilled cheese for life all right and I'm happy to do it <laughs> I'm ha- you're getting I'm excited good, and happy to do you're it you're both getting good value there I mean I think very what, good value <laughs> what you've touched on is is really key the kind of personal narrative the realization that you have a stake in this and that there are people that might have had an upbringing like you that you want to ensure that you know your tr- professional training can benefit them in some way and and that that's where I think the best work starts and that can be pro bono work you know for years i was a huge advocate for pro bono design during my tenure as the executive director of a national nonprofit called public architecture we were based in san francisco i had the great you know pleasure of leading it from a very early age until about 2010 and it it was actually almost exactly the opposite of the experience that i had with arc voices whereas that was a very frustrating pursuit of the kind of licensure reforms that we were talking about. The opposite side of things is that when we launched public architecture, there was just so much goodwill that we were able to tap into. And it didn't actually start as an effort to get architects to do pro bono work. It was started in the way that many people start their practices. And that was to do projects, to be architects for the public good. And yet we had so many people approach us. And when I say us, it was primarily John Peterson, who's now the curator of the Loeb Fellowship at Harvard, but was the founder of public architecture. He had so many people come up to him and say, oh, we want to do what you're doing. So we're going to start a nonprofit, just like public architecture, to do more of that work. And the reality is that we don't need more nonprofits to do design work for the public good. What we need are more architects and designers in their practices to be doing more work for the public good. If there are nonprofits, then they're all going to be competing for funding and philanthropic support, donations, charitable contributions, that kind of thing. If they're in their practices, they can leverage all these incredible resources and all the knowledge and all the human resources that a firm brings. And so that's where the pro bono program that now is called the One Plus program came about. There's 1,500 plus firms that are signed on for it at this point. They've all pledged 1% of their billable hours, which amounts to about 20 hours per person per year. If you put you know, a, a basic hourly rate on there of you know, roughly $200 an hour, those pledges amount to about $50 million in donated services annually, at least pledges for those things. And so pro bono in that sense became this like really highly scalable and highly leveraged uh, way to direct the goodwill of the, the profession. And it continues to this day, and I, I support them in, in you know the broadest terms. But what we also discovered is that while there was this huge commitment on the part of firms to do this work, there was comparably little demand from the social sector. And when I say social sector, I mean nonprofit organizations like the ones that you just described, Ken, but any other nonprofit that provides social services to the poor, that, you know, does 
a whole array of other things that, that society relies on. These organizations don't see design as one of the, the tools in their toolkit. And many of them operate in very dismal spaces with, you know, really poorly, you know, lit, poorly furnished. And in some cases, they wear that as a badge of honor. They show that they are like living the experience of many of the people they're trying to serve. And I get some of that logic. On the other hand, I also believe that everyone deserves good design. And so this program, the, the pro bono program that we had, really set about trying to get nonprofits to renovate their offices and then by extension introduce design to all of the people that they're serving, whether it's their clients or you know patients in a healthcare setting or whatever it might be, really to bring design exposure to historically marginalized people. And so it's really that supply and demand discrepancy that kind of led me down another path after the pro bono piece. But maybe I should pause there to see if you have any thoughts or questions about that. Yeah, you know, I, I'm starting a, with a new firm in a couple of weeks and, and uh, they have a, a, they've had a strong presence. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the East Franklin neighborhood. Oh, in, sure, in sure, Minneapolis. sure. Yep. So they have a really strong presence in, in that neighborhood, um, doing a lot of work for the first people's community. And that, again, I mean, you talk about marginalized community. I mean, you can't, you really can't get any more marginalized mm-hmm. than that. I mean, it really is. So they do a lot of, uh, nonprofit work and it's, it's a tough, it's a tough job. You know, it's the, the work I've done for the, for the groups of people that I've worked with in my side practice have been really rewarding. And that's been probably the, the biggest thing that has come to me. And, and it really came to me, um, that it was how rewarding it was, not just in the doing, but actually seeing, I went to the the conference this year and, and got to see Mass and Michael Murphy and, um, Francis Carre. And it finally, it dawned on me. And because my, my early, my early education in this profession, um, was always pushing away anything connected to social architecture mm-hmm. because it was always led by a a bunch of hippies that I just didn't connect with. Oh, sure. And they were always really kind of the, the sick, you know, I didn't, didn't connect with the sixties hippies. Even though I'm from that, you know, I was born in 68. I just didn't really resonate. They didn't resonate with me because they always seemed to separate good design from good, from, from the purpose, you know, the good purpose of like taking care of people. And now I see the, I say Francis Carre and Michael Murphy. And I went, Oh wait, this can really happen. You can take wonderful design, build these amazing spaces and satisfy the needs of a community. And can you talk a little bit about what, I mean, why that happened, or maybe you thought about it and, and where we're going with that? Yeah, I, I think you're, you're pointing out something that has challenged this type of practice for a long time, that the good design, and we're, when we're talking about that, we're talking about like design excellence, was somehow not associated with this design for the public good. And I can see how and why that happened for a long time. It it was considered a subset. It was outside of traditional practice. It was often done on a pro bono basis. It was often given like special recognitions of the social impact design award or some other, you know, special category of that sort. And I think it would have continued that way for a long time had uh, not, you know, this extraordinary hospital in rural Rwanda popped up. That's where I point to when people ask, what bridged these two worlds? I really believe it was a hospital that was beautifully designed, that was beautifully photographed to as much you know attention 
to detail of the photographs as you would give to any other high-profile project. And it also benefited from having the association to both Harvard in the GSD, the kind of, and, and some circles considered like one of the, the pinnacle design schools. I didn't go there. So, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that, but nonetheless, it helps. And then um, as well as an operating organization in Partners in Health. And so it, it solved several things. Number one, it was large scale. It was no longer a temporary shipping container clinic that was very well-intentioned, but never realized the promise that, you know, a lot of us had heaped on it. It was beautifully made with local labor and local materials. Two things that frankly were not in a lot of the dialogue about this type of work as central as mass has made them. And then the, I think just the third piece is that, you know, it was no longer reserved for these special categories. We instantly saw mass presented alongside the best design practices of our time. And, you know, that came to a head about a year ago when Architect Magazine, the journal of the AIA, literally put them on their top 10 design firms. And that might seem insignificant or arbitrary or subjective or whatever you want to call it. But that was momentous. And, you know, as somebody that advocated for a long time that we call this public interest design or social impact design or human-centered design or whatever, you know, titles were trendy at, at, the, uh, at the time, I, I've come to believe that the people like me who are trying to label these things did a disservice to the work because it is, at the end of the day, design. And I would argue it's a more pure form of design than you know, what we currently give that title to. And so, you know, I've really gone, kind of done an about face around the kind of labeling of this work. And I think that the more that we can hold up this work as, you know, just as high quality, just as well-made, just as impactful, I think that this work is actually going to raise people's expectations about what we've historically pointed to as good architecture and design. I think that architecture and design is going to be better because of the example of entities like Mass. You know, I think when I saw Francis's work at the conference and it, I reflect, I, I can't, every time I talk about quality of design or design excellence, I've always bring him to the table as a, as a, and I'm, I actually contacted, <laughs> contacted his office in Berlin because I want him on the podcast, but he's to me, if there's a, if there's somebody who would best represent the Frank Lloyd Wright of the 21st century and a better version of Frank Lloyd Wright, because mm -hmm. a more humble and you <laughs> humble uh, person, it, it's his work. It's, it's the most connected to the site and more connected to the site because it's connected to the people. It's the most rooted and well-conceived projects that I've ever seen. And, and I, I put him, you know, I, unfortunately I put him up before Stephen Hall to get the Pritzker, but that's just me. <laughs> well, I mean, Fran Francis is extraordinary. I mean, I've had a chance to work with him quite a bit. Um, I helped bring him to the Ted stage in my capacity with Ted. And, you know, I think his work really resonates with people. And I think what, what you're pointing to is that his work feels so appropriate, so authentic because he is from that place. You know, that is, that's something that's actually very hard to accomplish. And yet he happens to be from a place where there is extraordinary need and opportunity, but he's shown that there is also the ability to create beauty and to like really change people's lives. And so we've seen other examples of that. I mean, it just, 
pulling it back to Michael Murphy for, for a moment, Mass Design Group is now doing extensive work in Poughkeepsie, New York, where Michael was from. And I'm sure that it benefits from their experience in Rwanda, but I know that it means as much, if not more, to Michael because it is from the place that that uh, it, it's happening in the place that he is from. And so, you know, maybe that's a good lesson for all of us to think about, you know, really wanting to to contribute to the places that we come from. I'm, I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, originally. I have very few ties to that city. I'm proud of it in many ways, but there are almost certainly things that I could do to contribute, even from afar. And, you know, if I had a little bit more flexibility in my life, I would consider going back there in order to make some contributions. But I think in the meantime, you know, it's just a really useful thing to point out that Francis's work is grounded in the place where he is from. I uh, work with a a young graduate from the University of Minnesota, and um, she just won or she just recently had a project built over in Africa for I think it might be, it's definitely a clinic. Uh, I'm not exactly sure of, of the project uh, type, but um, I'm positive of that. But she had a question for you. Her name is uh, Gary Kelkar, and uh, she's a she's been listening to the podcast and she's super excited that we were talking to you today. That's great. She was interested in to know, in your experience, how could public interest design projects be beautiful, engage, uplift the community, and thrive in subsequent years after the project is built so they don't, they don't become trophy projects that uh, make the cover of some architectural magazine, but really make a difference in the community? Well, I think there's several questions in there, actually. One of them is, on the front end, holding the kind of planning and programming and design of it to the same standards that we would of our best design projects. And, you know, in the case of Mass, which I reference a lot because I study them a lot, I report on them a lot, you know, I... I believe in their model of immersive design. That means literally their top people spend time living on the sites, living with these communities, seeing them both in like formal focus group settings as well as informally, you know, how they come, like walk to a place or leave a place, where they go after they leave whatever facility they're designing. I think that 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 piece of it on the front end needs to be held to very, very high standards. I also think that the really defining piece of Mass's work. And there are other practices beyond theirs, but the one that you can point to is the operating power of an entity like Partners in Health, which takes responsibility for a building. And they take responsibility for it because they have co-created it with Mass. It doesn't mean that Mass turned over like every design decision to them or that they were sitting around with like crayons and butcher paper to like co-design this thing, but they they did legitimately co-create it based on their shared experiences. And, you know, I think that whereas we've seen a lot of projects that have become abandoned or never realized their full operating potential, Mass and other groups like it have some role to play in that, but ultimately that is the purview of these operating partners. And so Partners in Health, Jeskio, others, you know, have now become repeat clients for Mass and they know how to work with them and they know how to take the building forward. And I think that, that that's what that's one of the biggest distinguishing features of their projects. And that's what ensures that they operate in the long haul, as opposed to, you know, some other very well intentioned circumstances where 
a an operator is not present or is not fully vested in a facility. Do you think that the reason why Mass and, and many others are able to work in places outside of the United States, in Africa and in Asia, because it's the regulatory agencies are a little more loosely cobbled together and are able to operate in a, a little bit more flexible way? It seems like I, I kind of and where I'm going with this is I'm trying to understand we when when we saw Francis and we saw Mass, uh, we saw Michael Murphy. I had a discussion with a few architects at the conference and we were trying to figure out why couldn't this work in Chicago? Why mm-hmm. can't this work in places in America where we know that the only way that infrastructure money gets spent on those communities if if a bunch of white people move in that community and it gets gentrified? Is it possible? I mean, there seems yeah. to be, wasn't any consensus in that regard? Because, because you know, on Francis, he's, and I think in Michael Murphy's case, they both really did a good job of leveraging the skills on the ground, but they had skills. They already had some marketable, they had skills that they can work with. Sure. But in a lot of these communities, we don't have that kind of skill set. So how, do you think that's possible given that deficit? Well, I, I think it is. You know, the same, what, what you just described about not having the same regulatory standards, codes, X, Y, and Z in these other countries, people have long said that about the rural studio. They have said that since, you know, Sam Mockby and DK Ruth founded that thing in like the early 90s. And as a result, it has remained a kind of like shining star, but also an outlier. It's not been replicated in any significant way across other schools. I think that there is the, we all have the propensity to point to why we can't do certain things. And yet we do have examples, both domestic and foreign, of, you know, this type of work happening in other locales. And so you can go to the south side of Chicago and see, you know, 20 or 30 buildings that have either been built or renovated in significant ways by the artist Deaster Gates, who, by the way, is from there. He's not parachuting in. He lives there. He has his practice out of there. He leverages, you know, this immense personality that, you know, he he birthed there. You see, you know, of course, examples like the High Line in New York. And there are critiques of that, but that is an extraordinary project that has introduced design to countless people in a really commendable way, I would say, overall. But you also have examples of like much lower cost, and I'm talking about per mile in this case, projects like the Beltline in Atlanta, which, of course, is suffering to some degree from some of the same gentrification issues that you mentioned and that certainly you know one could associate with the high line but there are projects happening here in the US and i think there's room for many more i do have a unique chance to interact with people from an array of sectors because of the work that i do and i've seen literally chief building inspectors of major cities be interested in design innovation at a level that I guarantee is more progressive than many of the firms that are serving up projects for their approval. And so, you know, I, I just think it's a matter of of showing by example in a lot of these cases. I think that Theaster, to go back to him on the south side of Chicago, it has raised a lot of people's expectations citywide and even nationally about what can be done and how urban redevelopment can happen in a thoughtful, uh, you know, appropriate way. So I really think it comes down to holding up more examples. And that may be a great pivot to my current book. That's exactly what I try to do, is show that this is happening. It's still 
at the level of being exceptions and not the rule, but that it's happening around the world. It's happening at a quality that we've simply not experienced before. And for that reason, I'm really excited and optimistic about it. You know, it's interesting. We have a 2030 challenge. We're all familiar with it. We have efforts by my company, the company I'm currently with, to reduce their carbon footprint. They're making pledges. Do you think there's something that to that where we could probably we could we could have a, a, a kind of twenty twenty five or a twenty fifty challenge where we can commit as architect as a profession to solving problems that plague our cities without you know it seems like we don't get on the we we're not interested until someone's interested in paying us for our services and I'm tired of being asked to the table I want to like push myself up to the table. I'm tired of being waiting for people to ask me. I know there's problems out there. I see it and we all see it. And I'm tired of waiting for the the ask. I want to start proposing solutions to problems. I want to start getting with people who are interested in solving problems and not waiting to be asked to the table. Do we need that kind of initiative in this profession so that we can motivate people to actually tackle the, the issues around affordable housing? And that isn't financed by bogus uh, tax increment financing. Uh, you know, we, do you think there's something to that that we could actually get mo- get people motivated to focus on? Yeah, I think just pointing to the 2030 challenge, you know, as something that has a an actual timeline associated with it. It has goals, it has metrics, and it has a champion. It had Ed Masria, you know, who was like, who made this his life's work and was just dogged in getting people to sign on to this thing. There is certainly room for that from a social standpoint. I think there's great case studies like the 2030 Challenge. I think that there's probably really useful precedents from other fields that have managed to like legitimately create movements to move the professions, whatever those might be, or those fields in in new directions. I think there's a great opportunity for that. I mean, I think that you could reasonably argue that the 1% program, what's now called the One Plus program, was a form of that. I don't think it realized its full potential. And I think that nobody yet has solved for that supply and demand discrepancy that I that I described. But I do think we're better positioned than we've ever been to hold up the examples that we really believe represent the kind of change that that we think design can make in the world. But it's not a short-term game. I mean, it, it's a long game, I really believe, kind of moving the the needle on these things. I have one more one more question for you. And given all that's that's happened recently, um, not even talking politics, just talking about environmentally. Mm-hmm. We've got Houston that's been that dealt a blow. We've got parts of Florida. We got the keys that really don't exist. We've got Puerto Rico that's been wiped out. You know, how do we, how do we take this? I mean, and you, I think in your book, you've talked a little bit in, um, I think in your, even in your new book, you, you work with a Clinton global initiative and you worked on, um, these issues or talked about these issues. Uh, where do you, how do you see this current situation? And I guess it is political. Everything's political. How do you see this situation as we're going through it currently playing itself out with the particular political climate as it, as it is right yeah. now. It seems like there's almost this blackmailing scheme going on with Puerto Rico right now. Mm-hmm. It just seems like the only way they're going to get the assistance that they need is if they come to the table and, and satisfy some Wall Street uh, issue. Because I know there's a whole lot of, I mean, the president brought it up yeah. in his tweet. 
they've got these issues with Wall Street, and it seems like there's almost this implicit blackmailing scheme going on. If you want, if you want your island saved, you're going to have to come to the table on this issue. It, it, what, what we're watching on the TV and on our Twitter feed every day is unthinkable to me. It is the opposite of human decency. It is the opposite of the kind of trust in facts that we all are educated in, if we're educated at all. You know, like, how in the world is this a question after seeing what we've seen? And when I say this, I'm referring to climate change. Like, how in the world is climate change a question when we see the power of the storms that have decimated communities and the total lack of readiness and preparedness in many of those communities? Because in the case of Houston, for example, they've been, you know, they've been focused on deregulation of city planning there for a long time. Um, how in the world can we be surprised? And yet this is only going to get worse. You know, the the reason that Puerto Rico is in anyone's consciousness is because finally enough people after a week have started speaking out about it publicly. And it has its own challenges. It's been near bankruptcy for several years now. Like this is not, a, this is not a, a, you know, a territory that has been you know, just like twiddling its thumbs, it has been struggling. And and yet what we see from the administration is a, a complete disregard for the people who are American citizens. You know, like this is this is nuts. And so I, I can't speak, I can't in any way speak for what this administration can or should do. They will continue to do nothing until they're voted out of office. And I think that it's a priority for architects and designers to understand that design does have a role to play in this type of, you know, this, this political environment and to at least start planning for when the, either the House or the Senate flips and or when the White House turns over, um, you know, to try to shore up all these places where we are failing miserably now and where we're on a trajectory to only become more vulnerable. So that is political. Like I am, I do not shy away from the political implications of what I just said. At all. Here, here. That's yeah. uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> We've been hammered away at this for <laughs> perfectly, uh, perfectly summarized there. Uh, I'd like to, I'd like to talk about your book before we get into you. You have a new book coming out. It's uh, Design for Good: A New Era of Architecture for Everyone. This is your your second book. Before we start talking about this book, uh, maybe we can look back uh, briefly at, at your first book, The, the Power Pro Bono. Mm -hmm. uh, that book uh, took a, a close close look at a number of pro bono architecture projects around the country. Mm -hmm. I'd like to I'd like to kind of hear a little bit about that book and and also, you know, learn about what what lessons you kind of took out of uh, your experience writing that book. And is this a uh, new book that's coming out? Is this a continuation of the work? I'd like to, uh, to learn more about how, how the two books uh, relate to each other. Yeah. So, so the power pro bono was really the culmination of my seven year tenure at public architecture. And it was looking domestically because at the time there were a lot of books, uh, the most you know, significant among them were designed like you give a damn, the one and two editions that they did. And um, those were largely focused on international or global efforts in a really commendable way. And I wanted to show that this work wasn't just isolated to places outside of the U.S. And so all the projects were domestic. All of them were undertaken by firms that were operating on a pro bono basis and in partnership with nonprofit organizations of, of different kinds. You know, the, the biggest breakthrough of that book was 
completely inadvertent. I was struggling because I had never really written anything before. I was struggling with coming up with a narrative around these projects. And, you know, I had interviewed a bunch of architects for the book and was somehow feeling incomplete about it. And I realized I was perpetuating something that we still see happening in, in the architectural press, uh, perpetuating this idea that architects and, and their design intentions are the complete story. And I hadn't made any effort really to connect with clients or users. And so I, I kind of dug deep, figured out a way to like reach out to a lot of clients and users, to interview them, to really figure out how to ask them questions that would get to the essence of their experience of a place. And um, the book ended up becoming this collection of mostly transcribed interviews. I mean, they were heavily edited, but we presented the client and the designer perspective side by side. They're literally every single project has exactly the same number of words attributed to the designer as they did to the client. And it felt really unique and significant in that way. But it didn't shift architectural discourse by any means. I mean, I didn't see like a big shift or a revolution in the way that the, that design projects were covered in the in the media. I still think that some of the richest anecdotes and examples that I can draw on as somebody that speaks about this work a lot are the the viewpoints, the experiences of clients and users, and yet they remain such a minority in our discourse. So does that answer your question about you know, kind of some things relative to the power of pro bono, Paul? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the new book, can you talk a little bit about, about Design for Good? Sure. Yeah, so the new book came fully seven years later. It's a two-year project. I proposed it in late 2015 to a publisher, several publishers, and went with one. And I knew the limitations of the power of pro bono, meaning that they, that they were transcribed. I wanted to push myself to really develop more cohesive narratives that would not simply have transcribed interviews running side by side, but instead would be woven together. And I had gained a little bit of experience doing more feature writing and op-ed writing and that kind of thing in the interim, but it was still a huge learning curve for me. I'm married to a journalist. Uh, she's a well-known author and the co-founder of a nonprofit called the Solutions Journalism Network. That's about showcasing, you know, what works in the world and how it works, as opposed to the kind of culture of investigative reporting that we see highlighting corruption and damage and negativity. This is a very kind of solutions-oriented approach to journalism. I tried to employ that in Design for Good. And so I set some standards. One of them was that the projects had to be completed within the past five years, um, ideally even more recent than that. But I just wanted to show recent projects and not point to many of the same ones that we had been pointing at for a long time. I wanted to you know, look at a series of project types. And so that breaks down along similar lines as the power of pro bono in Design for Good. And But it's, it's generally you know, health-related projects, education, housing, and civic. Because you know, I think that those do have unique opportunities and unique challenges associated with them. There's also a matter of scale in, in the case of some of them. There are small and large-scale projects in each one of those categories in Design for Good, um, but I, I definitely wanted to achieve some kind of larger scale coverage. And then, you know, I think just the final piece is that I wanted to show that this work is beautiful, that it's well 
documented these days by the likes of Iwan Bon and other top-tier architectural photographers. But I also wanted to go back to Paula Scher at Pentagram to lay it out and make it a beautiful book that is hopefully, um, certainly by my standards, but hopefully to others, as kind of treasured and desirable as you know, some other architectural monograph that they might pick up about their, people might pick up a, about their favorite firm. I really wanted it to to show the beauty kind of through and through. Can you talk about one of the projects that you profiled in the book? Boy, there were so many. I mean, there's 20 different projects. There's so many that I entertained. There's so many that I analyzed. I interviewed upwards of 100 people for the book. And the one organization that I had honestly never heard of before. It came through a referral is Nairobi based group called Orchid Studio. And they work primarily on health related projects in Kenya, Zambia, Cambodia, several other countries. It's very much a design build firm. But the build part that is so surprising and so interesting, and I I would say innovative, is that they train and employ women laborers in significant numbers. They have women in construction as one of the kind of core tenets of their work, and they didn't plan on that originally. It happened purely by accident, as I would argue so many of the best things in life do, where a woman laborer, uh, excuse me, a woman walked onto their job site and said, I want, I need a job. I want a job. I want to work for you. And they looked around and there wasn't a single woman on their construction site. There never had been. And um, uh, building things, at least. And they said, if you come onto this job site, we want you to be the best mason when you walk off of it. We want you to be the best carpenter. And this woman just completely rose to the challenge. She was, at that time, you know, in her early 30s, had seven children, had you know done laundry and farming and other things, had never built anything in her life. Um, she has gone on to become a very talented builder. And so I love that piece of it um, that I hadn't seen before. You know, there's other projects on the other side of the globe in rural China that the nonprofit organization called Rural Urban Framework, which is a design build program associated with the University of Hong Kong, you know, had launched. And it's so interesting to see so many of the same commitments to like local labor and local materials that are now hallmarks of the work that we see, the best work, I should say, that we're seeing in Africa, uh, see that bubble up on the other side of the world. Um, and then just to bring it home, you know, here to the U.S., I've been very struck by the work of BC Workshop, short for Building Community Workshop, that's led by a guy named Brent Brown down in Dallas. And they do work throughout Texas at this point for very underserved populations. The one project that I showcase in the book is a collection of 50 cottages. And these aren't like temporary tiny homes on trailers that are, you know, popular in certain design publications these days. These are instead permanent 400 square foot cottages that are now home to the 50 most chronically homeless people in Dallas. And each one of these 50 cottages are beautifully detailed. You know, when the person who was who is now occupying them moved in, they were fully furnished. They literally had a toothbrush and toothpaste, a stove and a crock pot, a toaster, a refrigerator, waiting for these people to like start their new life. And, you know, that that to me is a really, a really compelling project, especially being here in the Bay Area where we're just 
were witnessing very rampant homelessness and homeless encampments and so on. I looked to a project like that that united an array of partners, an array of funding sources, and has, you know, as far as we can tell, demonstrably shown that it can keep people off the street. I think we need a lot more projects like all three of those that I just mentioned. You mention uh, dignity a lot in this book. Can you talk a little bit about that term and how you use it specifically in reference to architecture and design? Sure. Yeah, I, I appreciate you picking up on that. I, in a perfect world, dignity would have been a big part of the title, <laughs> but, but um, authors don't always win that fight. And so, you know, I had heard for several years now, people kind of use this term loosely. And I had honestly... I think a pretty limited understanding of what it meant and what the origins were. And so I did a fair amount of research, like digging into the root of that word. And it turns out that dignity was used in precisely the opposite way that I now use it and that we now use it. And it was, it was to confer status among the royalty. It was to show that they were distinct. And what we've seen mainly through a lot of Catholic theology, which is only mentioned here because it was the religion of my childhood, one that I've largely denounced since that time, Catholic thought introduced the term of dignity that we all have value, that we all deserve certain things in this world, some like basic tenets of what it means to be a human being. And in the mid-40s, we saw it introduced by the United Nations with the Human Rights Charter and a whole array of other things. And then more recently, we've seen it pop up as, you know, kind of one of the buzzwords of the, of the uh, social sector. But to, sim- to put it in like really clear terms, I believe that dignity is to design what justice is to law and health is to medicine. And, you know, in, in even simpler terms, it's about having spaces that reflect back to people that are inhabiting them that they have value, that they are cared for, that their comfort and well-being mean something. And those are lofty goals for all places and spaces, but we all know what it's like to be in, in spaces where we feel exactly the opposite, where we feel like, you know, who was this? We ask ourselves, who was this place designed for? Or we go to the DMV or the post office or any number of other public institutions where we've seen design be kind of stripped. And as a result, the human experience in those places is really, really subpar. And so I like to think of dignity as something that if we keep it as a a kind of foremost goal of design, it can help us achieve what I think the best of design can do. And that's to make people feel valued. Well, yeah, it'd be nice if every project started out with that, with that goal. It's, uh, (laughs) I was thinking, how about health, safety, and dignity? I mean, welfare just sounds, you know, I mean, dignity fits in that that combination it sounds much more forward thinking. Well, I, I'm glad you I'm glad you feel that way. I, I I definitely have felt that that it's a kind of breakthrough term. I don't see it reflected in any substantial way in things like the AI Code of Ethics and Professional Conduct or the NAB accreditation criteria. And not that those things are the solutions, but those are the kind of like universal playbooks for how our profession theoretically operates. And so You'll hear me talking about dignity a lot more. You know, I've got a TED Talk coming up on it. I've got a bunch of other plans related to this title, uh, related to this book and the, the concept of dignity. But the more I dug into it, the more it felt 
just quite right. And it's really been been interesting. You know, I gave a creative mornings talk, which is this whole global sensation. If you're not familiar with it, they're in 183 cities around the world at this point. And the the entire theme for the past month, especially the you know the the date that I gave a talk for, was compassion. And I, you know, like a good student, I went to Google, went to Webster's Dictionary, looked up to make sure I really understood what the word compassion meant. And it, it comes with some, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very well-intentioned word, but it comes with this sense of sympathy that I don't believe dignity has. I don't think that the starting point for dignity is sympathy. And I think sympathy is complicated in that it starts with you feeling sorry for someone else. And I don't think that's where the best of design work will ever come from. And I also don't think that that's where dignity starts. Dignity starts with a baseline that we are all deserving and that we are all equal. And that's just one of the reasons that I've kind of rallied around that term. You know, dignity, for when, when we're hearing you talking about dignity and just thinking about and, and, and processing that, and, and given my experiences growing up, you know, I think about it and it's, it's a powerful word. It's not a handout. It's not a holding your hand out. It is a word where you can stand up and your chest is raised mm-hmm. and your head is high. And it's something that I think you can easily, when you're doing a post-occupancy study of a project, you can start asking that question. Is, is this, does this space, does this give the end user a sense of dignity? Does it, do they walk away and feel that they have position in life, that they are not just a group of people to be put in a box and, you know, and say, I've, I've done my best. I've, I've given them a roof over their head. That's all I need to do. Yeah. If it, they don't feel that they have a sense of, of, they don't have that sense of dignity, then I don't think you've, I think you've failed your post-occupancy. I think that's, that study's failed. And to just add one point to that, which I I, I certainly appreciate all of your, your thoughts there. I believe that the type of work that's showcased in the book can also dignify the practice of design. We all know extraordinarily unhappy architects and designers. You know, there is actual data uh, now about the mental health of designers. I'm sure it's been covered on Arconnect or elsewhere, but I really believe that returning to this concept of dignity or this 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 notion that uh, design is for the public good can restore some of the dignity of this field, which I really observe has been lost. And I'm I'm not looking for any sympathy. I, I benefit from being on the margins or even outside of the field. So this is not a like self-interested thing. I just, I really want all of my architect and designer friends, as well as, you know, future generations to feel like they're in one of the most noble professions. And instead they feel beat up or unseen or, you know, removed from a lot of society's greatest needs, that's something that we can change. It doesn't need to stay the way it has been of late and the way it is now, where design is a luxury. We can really make it much more accessible. And I, I think we can we can put ourselves on the road to making that happen. Well, before we get to our final two questions, I just got a couple quick questions for for our listeners that want to become more socially responsible and engaged. Do you have any specific charities or organizations that you would recommend architects check out to, you know, to become involved and and to start applying their skills and experience in, in uh, productive ways? I would 
advocate that you do what Ken talked about earlier, and that's to identify causes that connect with your personal narrative, that connect with your past and your, your greatest interests, and to do so locally. Those are very hard things to do, but that's where I think all the best work starts. I think it's very easy to think, oh, I'll you know, go solve the water crisis in Africa or some other thing because it has this distance that you think you can use to your advantage. I really think getting to know an organization is unequivocally the best way to enter into this type of work. And I'll, I'll use somebody like Anne Fougeron as an example. And this is an example from my first book, The Power of Pro Bono. Anne Fougeron didn't set out to redesign upwards of a dozen Planned Parenthood health clinics in the Bay Area. She started by answering their crisis phone line. She started by spending time in their office and came to understand that her experience and skills as an architect, you know, had some bearing on what they were trying to do in those in those settings and that she could improve those settings. She could replace the the like very sterile bulletproof glass that had popped up in Planned Parenthood clinics due to bombings and that kind of thing, but that we also see you know, in post offices and banks and other places these days, she was able to identify how design could make a difference. And she went about doing that. But her entry point, just to be very clear, was to learn about that organization, to observe them. And that's something that all of us can do. And it's relatively low commitment. And you can have a lot of false starts, perhaps, where you explore several different nonprofits that you might want to become involved with in some way. But I think just entering in with an open mind is definitely, you know, something that that would would benefit the the process. And, you know, most building clients are first-time or one-time clients. There, of course, are large-scale exceptions to that. But just know that as a designer, you are going to have to do a lot of work to make sure you're communicating what the design process and ultimately the construction process is like. Because people have not had that experience, certainly not at the same rate that, you know, a firm's clients might have. If you're entering into the social sector, just assume that there's virtually no experience with building that part of your responsibility and your opportunity is to educate. Very nice. Ken, do you want to ask John the final two questions before we wrap up today? Hey, John, we ask uh, two questions at the end of our podcast. No pressure. What are you listening to and what are you reading these days? Well, I just finished reading uh, Bill Broder's book called Red Notice. I am, I would call, a Russian hacking theorist, not a conspiracy theorist, but one who is very interested in the facts and evidence surrounding the, the hacking of our national election. And this book called Red Notice basically provides at least some of the early impetus for why Russia has gotten involved in our democracy in the way that it has. I cannot recommend it more highly. It's gripping and it's a real, you know, true to life story that has direct implications for what we see on the TV and certainly in our political climate today. So I'm, I'm reading that. I listen to only a few podcasts. I wish I listened to many more. Um, one of them is On Being with Krista Tippett. She talks about matters of life that I think have relevance for all of us. And she's trying to talk about across political divides. She is entertaining some of the most 
original thinkers of our time. I cannot recommend her any more highly. And then from a music standpoint, several years ago, I stumbled across this street band, these buskers named City of the Sun. I saw them performing on the street with their guitar cases open on Union Square in New York. And I was mesmerized by them at that point. And I've played a very small role with helping kind of bring them to at this point, a global stage. We had them perform at TED and suddenly they are now on tour and doing all sorts of other stuff. But they're these um, three young guys, a percussionist, uh, two guitar players with talent beyond anyone that I've ever seen otherwise. And those are the kinds of things that, that fill my earbuds these days. Well, John, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us today. We are huge fans of what you're doing. It's, it's, uh, it's really important work that you're doing. So we're so grateful for you to, that you're doing this work and we recommend all of our listeners check out your new book design for good, a new era of architecture for everyone. And that is coming out very soon. It comes out October 3rd from Island press. And I really appreciate your kind words. You know, I, I think we all have a role to play and the role that Arconnect has has played over many more years than what we started with Arc Voices is a huge service to this profession. And I know that there are members of your community that see it as a lifeline. And I think that it's nothing short of that. Well, thanks so much. We're our platform is always open to uh to help get get the the word out about good initiatives and good design and dignified design. Great. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks, and talk to you next time.